Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Hi, my name is Sherry Hudspeth. It's my joy to bring you the scripture reading for this morning from Colossians 3, 5-8. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, or evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Welcome this morning, wherever you're watching from, live, live stream, or later on. Guys, we've already had somebody cry this morning. God's done a work, let's go home. I mean, that's what we're here from. Kidding. Uh, I love that kind of stuff. That's why we gather here or watch online is because we expect when we show up, and we proclaim the goodness of God and we read the words of God that he changes us. He moves us. And that's what we're going to talk about today is how God changed us. And so before we get into it, we're going to spend some time and ask the Holy Spirit to show up or to reveal himself to us. And we do this every week because we live in a really critical culture. And we know that God is good and we know that God is near and we know that God will change us. And so we're going to take a second and just pray against the criticalness of our culture and ask that God speak to us this morning through his text and through his scripture. And I'm asking that you pray for me uh, that the Holy Spirit might use my words and my preparation to reveal more of who God is in the beauty of Jesus this morning. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that we can gather here today and just reflect on your goodness, whether we've read this passage before, heard these songs before, read our reading before, might we just be reminded about how good you are? Or maybe it's the first time that we've been in these things. And either way, Holy Spirit, we pray today that as we open the scriptures, that you show us the beauty of Jesus that you change our desires and that we might leave this place wanting more to be like Christ because that's our best good. And so we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you show us more of Jesus through our scriptures. And I just ask if you're comfortable, take 10 or 15 seconds and say a prayer to yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to, to, to move in your spirit this morning and show you more of Jesus. And lastly, pray for me that God might work through the preparation and words to uh, help us more clearly see his character. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, 
Amen. If you've got a Bible, we're in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be in verses 5 through 8 as we continue in our series. And just to catch us up, what happens here is, is Paul takes a lot of time to lay down this identity bit. That because of the resurrection, you are now a new person. And he's going to spend the rest of this chapter saying this is what that looks like. It's all about change. The definition we use for change that I love for change is that change happens when the pain of the status quo becomes greater than the pain of the perceived change. I love that definition. When I hear it, I always think about my car. Because, because, because I hate taking my car in to get worked on. Right now, both check engine lights are on in both of my cars because I need oil changes. And it's not going to happen for a little while, I'm letting you know. Because I don't know anything about cars. And I feel vulnerable and emasculated when I go into auto mechanic shops. You can literally look at me and say, hey, Charlie, we got a big problem with your car this morning. Your phalange is bumping up against your dingle hopper, and that's a big problem. And I'd say, that sounds serious. And for those of you paying attention, yes, that is a Friends reference and a Little Mermaid reference in the same sentence, everybody. All right? It's the little things. But, but really... I'm not good with that kind of stuff. About a year and a half ago, I was driving my old car and I started hearing this knocking when I was driving. Just like this knock, knock, you know, you know, kind of like somebody's knocking on a door and it was kind of subtle and it was every once in a while, especially when I turned left and I was like, not a big deal. I don't smell anything. I don't see anything. And then it got worse. About three weeks later, it was knocking all the time and my, my steering wheel was vibrating a little bit more. And that's not a feature that you upgrade on with my Honda Accord. So I finally called my mechanic and I said, hey man, there's this knocking sound and it's vibrating. He said, get out of the car right now and check your tires. I'd been driving my daughter around going only the posted speed limit on the highways in Dallas and I get out and I check my left front tire and three of the studs, that's what a tire sits on, I now know that. Three of the studs had sheared off completely, and it was my tire that was banging back and forth on my car. You know what I did? I got that thing fixed, you know, because I found out the pain of the status quo. Today, what Paul's going to do as we get into our text is he's going to talk about the pain of the status quo. He's going to talk about our life before Jesus, and he's going to say, this is who you were. See it for how I see it. See what it's going to be like if you stay the same and recognize you're not the same. And he's going to do it in two lists. The first one is seen in verse 5. He says it like this. So put to death whatever's in your nature belonging to the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, shameful passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And before we go on, we've got to pause for a second. Because there are people right here, right now that say, yes, I get a list. So let's talk about lists in the scripture. Paul's going to use this list. The first four specifically he uses quite often in his writing. And we see about 12 different times in the New Testament. But what we have to realize is the why behind the what or why he uses this list. Because when lists were given in the scripture... From the Old Testament to the New Testament, lists pointed to the greater good that your purpose might be changed. So what he didn't say was just do everything on the list and might your motivation still be dangerous and bad and God is happy. That is seen throughout the Old Testament. They'd offer sacrifices but didn't really care about their sin. And God says, I'm not happy with that. The point of the list that I gave you is to change your purpose and intent. And that's what Paul is saying here. So he uses four words. And, and all those words, by the way, have some kind of sexual connotation to them. 
My version has the words sexual immorality, impurity, shameful passion, and evil desire, all relating around this idea of kind of sexual um, chastity, if you will. So you got to ask why he used that list in those words. You gotta ask what Paul's point was in using that list. And actually he uses that same list about 12 times in the New Testament. You have two options. One is you can say, well, Paul really cared about sexual chastity and all the 90s youth group kids said amen, right? Or, or if you got that, you're a 90s youth group kid. Or two, you can ask what was going on in that culture there that lends him to use this phraseology over and over and over again. Because the point isn't about the list, it's the purpose behind the list that he chose to use in the first place. And to understand why he chooses these words that have this common theme, you gotta understand Rome a bit. So when you think of Rome, and I think of Rome, I think of greatness, I think of military, I think of roads. But one thing you have to understand is that Rome was a pretty depraved place sexually. And we're gonna keep this PG because it's the family service, all right? But, but just to say this, there's a Roman historian that actually actually wrote these words. He said, soon after the founding of, of Rome in 753 BC, sex attained incredible, indelible, and inextricably linked to the political and historical importance of the annals of Rome. He's saying it was defined largely in part by their sexual promiscuity. So much so that, I don't know if you knew this, but the founding of Rome happened because of sexual promiscuity. There's a bunch of these thugs group around Rome and they weren't yet, you know, kind of one giant group. And so they said, you know what we need to do? This is about 750 BC. They said, we need more people. So they went into a surrounding village. They stole all the women and then, and then they had them have their babies essentially to keep it PG. And they said, now we're going to be a people. And they started growing. And that was the first moment most historians point back on and say, this is Rome. Here's what I know. The values you're founded with usually comes the values you value as a society. That's why in America, Boston Tea Party, we value tea. <laughs> Kidding, freedom, right? No taxation without representation. And you can go on and on and on, and we're not gonna get into the details because they're messy, but Rome was a place in which sexual promiscuity was seen as a good and not a bad thing. So much so that in the first century when this is being written, usually you were seen as, because in Rome, you, you valued a couple things, but power and, and, and prominence were really valued. And so it, it, the saying went that if you're a Roman male, that you dominate and have power over not just the battlefield, but the bedroom. And so you would use your wife for one thing and you'd sleep with whatever else you wanted that was underneath you for other things. And it was socially accepted. Paul is speaking into and against a certain culture here. He's speaking into and against a way of thinking because he's establishing identity. So what he's saying is, if this defines this people group as a whole, yes, I'm all about sexual chastity, but it's bigger and more important that what's happening here is you will be different than them. And that's the story of God's people all through the Bible. We see it in Leviticus when God first calls his people out of Egypt and he said, let me tell you what you're going to be about. And, and if you're a Jewish person reading this text, you're going to Leviticus 18 in the Holiness Code. It's a whole chapter about how sexually you're going to be different than the Egyptians where you came and the Canaanites where you're going. You will not be defined by the culture you came from or the culture you're going to. You will be defined by the character of God that's seen as you live out the culture of God's influence in your midst. And so he says in Leviticus 18, you're not going to sleep with everything that you see or want to. And here's the common thread between this entire section of this first list. You will not be ruled by your desire. You won't do it. 
If you're ruled by your desire, your desire will conquer your community you're trying to build. He said, you will not be ruled by your desire. One historian wrote this. He said, our early Christian ancestors did not confess biblical chastity in a safe culture that was naturally agreeing with them. The sexual morality they taught and practiced stood out as unnatural to the Roman world. Christian sexual ethics that limited intercourse to marriage of a man and a woman were not merely different from Roman ethics. They were utterly against Roman ideals and virtue of, of virtue and love. This is exactly why Christians faced so much hostility. Their, moral, their morality threatened society's stability by loving and protecting the marginalized and disenfranchised while condemning or even converting those who took advantage of them. What Paul's pushing back against when he gives this list isn't just sexual immorality. He's pushing back against a culture that doesn't value the things that God values. He's pushing back against desire being your best good. One author, I loved what he said about it. He said, the reason for the list focused on sexual vices is not prudishness, but, he, but the realization that the husband-wife relationship is first and foremost the most profound human interrelationship in which faith has to be proved. It's hardest for me to love my, my wife like Christ because <laughs> I live with her every single day. It's hardest for me to be most loving towards my wife, more so than my staff and more so than my friends. It's difficult, but that's the place where it's proved. And if you prove it there, then it overflows into other spaces and places because that's probably who you really are when nobody else is looking, right? Character 101 definition. And so he's saying, yeah, all these things are related around sexuality, but really it's painting the bigger picture of vices and desires. And he's saying, you need to put desire to death because of Jesus. You need to put desire to death. That's a certain kind of desire. And that's what he gets to in the next word. He said, in greed, which is idolatry. He threw this one in there. All the other times we see Paul use this list, he doesn't throw greed in there, but he does with this one to back up and make his biggest point that really all of your desires are, if they're centered around you, your desires are really just greed. Greed defined here as any materialistic desire, including lust, that disregards the rights of others. I love this definition of greed in this passage. It's the arrogant and ruthless assumption that all other persons and things are for one's own benefit. He's saying stop seeing people like they're your best good and start seeing other people as your best good. He's saying serve others. This is the method and the rhythm and the ways of Jesus. He's saying you will be a different culture and what begins that is changing your desires. And so he uses a sexual ethic to prove his point here. And he says, essentially, as he keeps going down this, don't let your desire for self and others drive your best good. Because in that context, outside of just sexuality, uh, the Roman world were driven by consumption. There is a first century a fictional work called Satricon, and, and it talks about this slave that became really rich. And basically, it, it, it paints a picture of this one slave that became really rich that used all his money just to fill all his whims and desires in lavish ways. And he's painting this picture of what the Roman world was like. It's like, you guys have seen the Hunger Games, but in one of the Hunger Games movies, I remember this scene they're at the, the most elite people's little circle. And I don't know much about the Hunger Games world, so it's going to be a very bad description of that world. But there's one scene I remember, and they had this lavish party. 
There's all this food being passed around. And if you've ever been to a good dinner party, it's kind of hard because you want to eat everything and you eat too quickly, too much, and then you don't have any room left for anything. Welcome to Thanksgiving in America. And so they had this one pill and somebody asked, what's that pill for? And the pill was to make you feel hungry again so you could keep on eating at the expense of others. This is what he's describing that you're not supposed to be. He's saying, essentially, I love this. He's saying that your greatest desire is no longer your earthly or your old desires. Because here's the truth. What you desire most is your deity. What, what you run after the hardest is your God, whether you want to admit it or not. And that's what we do right now as Christians. It says we follow Jesus and we see the beauty of Jesus and we see the goodness of Jesus and we want to be more like Jesus. Jesus more captivates our desires. And so we want to be more like Jesus every day. And I'm not saying it happens in one single day. I'm saying this is a lifelong journey to shape our desires, to point more towards Jesus. That's why we need one another. So if you had a bad day yesterday or this morning, don't worry. There's this afternoon and tomorrow. This is sanctification. Look what Doug Moo wrote about it. He said, even in the heart of the established Christian are the makings of an idolater. Just simply reminding us that we have to be a people that put to death our desires, knowing full well that what we desire becomes our God, whether that be wife and kids and they're good, whether it be political party, we're not gonna go there this morning for obvious reasons. Whatever you put at the very top of your pyramid is what you worship. And so he's saying, put to death the things that were at the top of your pyramid before you were raised in Christ that we see in verses one through four. Because you should have a new desire that is the things of God. Okay, so there's the first list. It's all about sins of desire. And I think as a people, we're pretty good with that. I think as, as, as Christians now, we're pretty good shunning desire for the greater good of. I don't think that we have, as a Christian community, been infiltrated as much with sexual promiscuity as the Roman church has. But he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop with just sins of desire. He goes on. There's another list. You'll find it in verse 8. We're going to skip around a little bit today. You'll find it in verse 8. He says this. But now... Put off all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. And so he moves, he moves from desire to sins of division, all the things that divide the community you have. I mean, I think as a church, at least my growing upness in the church, we're really good at shunning desire at the expense of maybe even celebrating division a little bit, you know, because we're standing on our truth, which has to be defended at all cost, <laughs> whether it's a big truth that should be defended or whether it's a small one that maybe we should give more grace in. And so what he says is, here's the two lists I'm giving you. That which will define you as a new community of God and that which will keep you a new community of God and not divide you together. So he uses some words there. Anger, rage, malice, slander. Those first three words with anger and rage in the biblical text, those words are almost synonymous. And they're used in the New Testament almost interchangeably. And so they kind of mean the same thing. And, and malice there is a really broad word. And, and so what that means in the Greek text is malice takes on the context of the rest of the passage. We see this word a couple other times in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2.1 and in Ephesians 4.31. And both those times, when he uses the word malice, he's talking about how you talk to one another. Both those times, he's saying the theme here is division. And what I mean by division is how you speak to one another. That's why he continues and says, slander, abusive language as the last two. 
So he moves from things that will ultimately blow up our pursuit of Jesus and our desires to things that will divide the new community we have, which is how we speak to one another. One writer said, Paul's purpose is not to single out three specific sins, but to use the three words together to connotate the attitude of anger and ill will towards others that so often leads to hasty and nasty speech. And so what he's trying to do with both these lists is develop themes about those things that we're not supposed to be anymore because we're changing. He's saying, this was your status quo. Don't let it be anymore. Because if you're overrun by desire, then you won't desire God. And if you're overrun by things that divide you, you won't be a community anymore. And in a corporate culture, that was a really big deal. And that word slander there is one of my favorites because when we see that word slander, it comes from the word blaspheme. It's where we get our word blaspheme for, and we always think about blaspheming against God. And when you interpret this word, there's two ways to do it. But every time there's this underpinning idea that when I slander my fellow man, I'm actually slandering God as well. It's not just I speak badly of X, Y, and Z. It's in doing that I speak badly of this person who's made in the image of God. And it brings us to the differentiation between honor and respect. I'm called to honor every person, whether I agree with them or disagree with them, whether I agree with their actions because they're good or whether I disagree with their actions because they're terrible and they will only end in destruction. I don't have to respect it. I'm not going to respect action that leads towards hurt and pain for family and friends, but I will honor the image of God in you. I think a great example of this is just to go to the Bible, Genesis 9 story of Noah. He's the guy that built the ark for um, about 100 years and stayed on it for uh, a year after that. So we don't tell the end of that story. There was a rainbow and everybody celebrated, but right after the rainbow and everybody celebrated, we found the humanness of Noah again. And one day he grew some some grapes and he got drunk off the grapes that he he grew. And frankly, just to be honest, if I'm Noah and I spent a hundred years building an ark and I watched everybody but my family die and I stayed on an ark with animals and only my immediate family for a year, I might need a drink too, everybody. So so he got drunk one night and uh, one of his sons saw him when he was naked and he said, hey, let's go make fun of our dad. That is dishonoring someone. His other two brothers covered him up and actually they walked backwards in the tent so they wouldn't see him. They didn't respect what he did, but they honored who he was. And this is, I think, the differentiation in our text here when it says don't slander. It's not saying don't speak ill about ill things that are done. It's saying don't speak ill about people when you use your words because people are made in God's image. So we don't have to condone what they do, but we do have to honor them because of who they are and how God made them. And so he says don't slander people and watch your abusive language. And it brings us to this point. Just a quick little diatribe. Do we understand the power of words? You got to think about that. Because I think we have a a, a disproportionate relationship to actions and words. I think, you know, the the phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie from the get-go, and we all know that to be true. I don't have to give you an example of when somebody's wrecked your world with three words. You can figure that out yourself. We have this idea in our culture that action is really what matters, but here's the deal. The Bible paints a different picture when it talks about words. It says words just aren't how we communicate. It's how God chose us to communicate. Words create cultures and they create people and they actually created the world that says when God created in Genesis 1, how'd he do it? He spoke it into existence. God could have created in any way that he wanted to, right? Right? He could have done like a Thanos snap of his fingers. 
He could have done an introverted head nod towards the earth and said, hey, now it's all good. But he decided to use words and speak. And it's been a model for how we create in our own systems and cultures, how we create healthy kids as we speak good things into their lives, how we create healthy marriages that has to come with communication, how we create healthy communities as we speak to one another in ways that honor them and honor God. We have to understand that what he's talking about here are sins that change, that sins that absolutely change and divide our culture by the way that we speak to one another. And that's in person and on social media as well. How do we communicate to others? Because what you have to realize is that your words have weight and they have power. And Paul's saying you have to change the status quo of how you communicate to one another because you don't understand what it's doing to you. It can create a healthy community or it will divide and create an unhealthy community. Change the status quo. So as he's talking through these different examples, go now with me to verse six. He says, here's the two status quos that need to be changed. Your desires and the things that divide you because I'm creating a new you in the process. And then he says, here's what's next. We must choose to consistently, so at the beginning of verse five, we must put to death whatever in your nature belongs to earth. So he talks about these two lists and then he says, this is what we're supposed to do with them. I'm going to spend a couple minutes just talking about why he uses that term death there. One is just that when you think about it, life comes from death. That's just 101. Whether it's your breakfast this morning, the chair that you're sitting on, even the trees scream when you, you know, pull them from the ground. I think that there is this idea that, that life exists because death exists. And you can say, Charlie, but we had a kid in the last, you know, fill in the blank here and nobody died. I guarantee you a way of life died. <laughs> I think that in all cases, when life flourishes, in some way, something has to be put to death because here's the principle behind it. In order to add something into, to add a rhythm into, to, you have to make space for that rhythm to happen. If you don't make space, that rhythm will not have a place to grow and flourish, I promise. Uh, my daughter turned two about a month ago. We have not that big of a house, and so we try to not make it look like there's an adult living with this horde of children with the toys. And because she turned two, and we have a lot of people that love us because God is good, uh, they gave us all these gifts. It was awesome. And we realized at one point we were getting drowned out by Fisher-Price plastic. And so uh, that caused me two weekends ago to clean out our little shed. And, and we had to decide for the first time what toys stay and what toys go in storage for right now. Because with too many toys out, she doesn't play with any of those things, don't have time to flourish. She got this really cool little desk that's supposed to like touch and learn and do all these things. And when you're surrounded by all these other things, it doesn't give you the opportunity to grow in this one area language skills and drawing skills and let's not throw everything skills, you know? And so it's this idea that when he says put to death, it's not just because he hates it. He does. He says put to death because if you're not challenging your old self and putting things to death, you're not making space for your new self to grow. And so he says, put to death these kinds of things and ways. I love what one writer said. We must choose to constantly live out the reality of our spiritual experience. I think thirdly, he says, put to death, because those things are serious. I think this is a hard one for us culturally. It's a hard one for me. Is I think all the things he listed here are bad. I think that, yeah, they're not good for me and my relationships and our communities, but I don't see them as actively killing me if I don't kill it. And when the scripture talks about sins or the ways to live in this world that go against the rhythm that God created us to live in this world for to flourish, when when the scriptures talk about sins, it's a pretty binary proposition. 
It's not like halfway on lukewarm. It's get rid of it all the way and flourish in your new way. Don't let it hang around or dangle. I love what James says about it. But each of you, when is tempted, will be lured and enticed by his own desires. Then when desire conceives, it will give birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. The question that I have is, do we see these things as killing us if we don't kill them? Not some halfway house of, yeah, I'm going to gossip less this week, you know? But but I need to stop it altogether because in the end, if I don't, it will kill me. It'll kill my community. It'll kill my witness. It'll kill what I'm trying to do in terms of being more like Jesus. When I think about the idea of death and sin, what that's supposed to look like, I always think about people that keep pets that shouldn't be pets because they're cute as little babies, you know? And there's always a story or two every year when they find like an alligator in Lake Louisville. You know what I'm talking about? Um, One of my favorite stories is in 2011, there's a guy named Marie Ells, and he's a South African man, and he believed in the lie that I was told when I was a child, that hippos are nice creatures. You know, we played the game, Hungry, Hungry Hippos, you pat them on the butt, and they're happy and they're eating marbles. So hippos are awesome, smiling creatures. Here's the deal. You know, hippos kill the most people in the world for large mammals. Five, six, seven hundred people a year, something like that. These things are nasty, mean, territorial creatures. So this man in South Africa found a baby hippo, was five months old and already over one ton, and uh, he kept it as a pet. And he was being interviewed about it, and he said, I love this, he told a reporter, there is a relationship between me and Humphrey the hippo, because you have to, me and Humphrey that some people just don't understand. What he didn't realize was the relationship was that Humphrey was going to bite him and kill him, right? <laughs> and so the hippo grew up and got older, and he, he kept him around and knew the dangers, knew the dangers. But here's the problem is danger doesn't seem like danger if you live with it every day because you get a little, you know, like callous to it. And one day, hippo, or Humphrey became a full-grown hippo, and he attacked his master. And this thing's big and dangerous, and hippos kill people. And he didn't see the danger because he lived with it every day. That's what happens with sin. Paul's saying here in our text, you have to understand the danger of what these two things do. Your desires that don't line up with God and the way you speak to one another that breaks down the community of God you've been given. If you don't see the danger, if you don't see the power in the status quo, then you'll never change. See it. I love what John Owen said about sin. He said, be killing sin or it be killing you. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, If you have some problem areas in your life, he talks about eyes and hands, pluck it out, cut it off. He didn't mean that literally. He just meant go to extreme measures because I love you and I don't want you to persist in this action that will eventually end in ruin. It's a plea for him, for us to see the status quo as powerful and to change away from it because it's painful. And so I think what Paul's trying to say to us here is that the old way of life must be decisively challenged so that we will be definitively changed. He's saying, how are we challenging our old way? What is that looking like? How are we challenging those things, those desires that we had before we found life in Jesus or those things that divided before we found life in Jesus? We need to challenge them because we see the dangers of, because we realize the power of the status quo. And he goes on to describe what that looks like in verse six. It says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. And just not to take too much time talking about it, but when we see a big word like the wrath of God, 
we got to stop down for just a second because it's gotten a bad rap for a long time. And with the wrath of God, I think there's two different conversations here. We see the wrath of God in the day-to-day or the wrath of God in the one day. And this is more of a one-day application, but the day-to-day is more like I, this bad theology of I did something bad, God is going to smite me. I lied yesterday, so I got an accident today. That's just God judging me because I lied yesterday. That's a false theology. Any good dad doesn't want harm to come to his kids, and so he's not going to hit his kid if he messes up, right? And so what we talk about when we talk about the wrath of God, mostly in the Old and New Testament, I think, is, is the wrath of God is God letting his, his, his creatures feel the natural weight of the consequences of their actions. It's the whole Old Testament. It's Israel 101. So Israel would become buddy-buddy with these people on their borders and say, let's be friends. And God said, that's not a good idea because they're bigger than you and they're faster than you and they don't like the things that you like. And if you become good friends with them and then worship their God, they will take advantage of you. And so the whole story of the Old Testament in the second half especially is Israel friending these people, worshiping their gods, forgetting God, and God saying, I'm not gonna protect you anymore from them. And they get taken over. And they find God again, and God would deliver them. And that that cycle happened again and again and again. That's the book of Judges. And so what we talk about, when we talk about the wrath of God, is the fact that, that God sometimes lets us feel the weight of the consequences that we have chosen or the actions that we've chosen. So it's less God's smiting me and more God's gonna remove his hand of grace or mercy from you. Last week, I uh, went to pick up my kid off from daycare. And here's some words you never wanna hear when you pick up your toddler. We need you to sign something. It's not good. Um, and I said, what happened? And they said, she bit a child. <laughs> I said, oh my goodness, was it hard? I said, um, I said, oh, that's not good. I'm so sorry. Which kid? They can't tell you which kid. And I said, okay, that makes sense. Um, And then they stopped it right away and all that stuff. And so they stepped in and stopped it. I had a chat with her later on and we're trying to stop this biting thing. It hasn't happened before. won't happen since. And the the point there is simply we're going to step in and intervene because if she grows up still biting people, she's not going to have any friends. And the friends that she had aren't going to be good for her if she, you know, I mean, it's a whole other thing there. But my point is simply, sometimes we have to see the wrath of God as a consequence towards the actions or the choices that we've taken. That's one way to look at it. I think it's a gracious way to look at the wrath of God. What, what, what Paul's talking about here, when he said the wrath of God will be poured out on the sons of disobedience, what I think he's meaning when he's saying that is that one day God will eventually speak out against injustice and take action against it. God won't allow it to stand anymore. And here's the deal. I need that to be true. Because I need the God that I follow and the God that I serve to be bigger than all the injustices I felt to be bigger than the injustices in this world and to care about those things because he cares about us. To care about those things because he loves us. So really, if you put it in that context, wrath is the flip side of love if it's done in love to right wrong. I love what N.T. Wright says about it. He says, the wrath of God, it hardly needs saying, is not a malicious or capricious anger, but the necessary action of true holiness, justice, and goodness to wickedness, exploitation, and evil of every kind. It's the whole idea in the scripture that that we can choose God or not choose God, that God can choose us or not choose us. And, And what we mean by that is you get what you choose. If you choose to fall in love with the ways of Jesus, then one day for all days you get Jesus. If you shun the ways of Jesus and God, then one day for all days you don't. Heaven and hell. 
And so one day God will be done with all the wickedness in the world because he loves and cares for us. So he's saying, hey, remember, these things were like the people that one day will suffer the wrath of God because they don't love anything about God. Remember where you came from. It's not God saying, it's not Paul saying in this text, do this or you're going to suffer the wrath of God. It's him saying, remember that you were delivered from the sons of disobedience that will one day. Don't be like that anymore. It's encouraging, not threatening. It's important we see this text like that. Because he goes on to say in verse 7, you also lived your lives in this way at one time when you used to live among them. So he continues on with the identity bit. And he says, understand, this is the status quo. This is where the status quo gets you. But that's not who you are anymore. You have changed. God is changing you as a person and changing us as a people. We have to challenge decisively the way we used to be so that we will be definitively changed. That's his point in our text. And you can't change until you challenged what was. And so he says, remember what was. And this is what happens to the people that stay in the status quo. And you're not that anymore. So be encouraged to put those things behind you as we live more into who God's called us to be. But from death comes life. And so it's an encouraging text where he says, look at these things that used to be. We're moving away from those. And so my question, my purpose, my point, my reflection as I've thought about it is simply, what in my life am I challenging? (laughs) What in my life is God calling me to challenge saying, that's not who you are anymore. What if as a community we walked around saying, where is God challenging you this week as we're becoming something that we weren't, that we're not anymore? Where are we challenging who we were so that we will be changed? Paul says, put to death these things because it's not who you are anymore. You are something better. And that's what we're getting to next week. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you called us to put things to death. It's hard. And it's a process that won't end anytime soon as long as I'm walking around on this earth. So I I just pray that today might be encouraging, that we don't change because we want you to love us. We change because you already have. That we don't change because we want to stop you from punishing us. We change because you promised you won't. That we might put things to death because we see the power of what they might be if they persist in our life. So challenge us this morning. Challenge us to change our desire and to change those things that divide us so that people might see the beauty of Jesus. How his ways in the world are different than the ways of the world and how you right now, right here, right now, are creating a community that points people to a God who's better, to a life who's better, to an eternity that is better. May we be those people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.